Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Pensions Expert Podcast. This week we'll be discussing the pensions regulator's views on the defined benefit market. I'm Maria Espadinha, Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert, and joining me is David Fares, Executive Director of Regulatory Policy Analysis and Advice at DPR. We will discuss the recent criticisms made to the regulator's DB funding code, how TPR sees COVID-19 and its impact on pension schemes, and what we can expect in the consolidated space now that an interim regime has been launched. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us. I would start by asking you about the DB funding code consultation, which was launched in March, around the same time that we had COVID-19 and lockdown. The consultation is closing soon, but there has been some voices pointing out some concerns on how the two systems, Fast Track and Bespoke, are going to work in parallel. How is the regulator seeing these kind of concerns? Yeah, we launched the uh, consultation on the funding code back in March, and we thought we were introducing it into a uh, period of economic and political stability. Uh, And then, of course, we had uh, COVID-19. We recognised, actually, that uh, the initial consultation period perhaps didn't give people enough time to think about the issues that we were uh, raising in the consultation. So we extended the Uh, closing date for consultation out to the 2nd of September. Uh, I I think it's really important to stress that this consultation, uh, we're envisaging that there may be uh, two consultations, but this first consultation is very much around the principles that we uh, are looking to use in terms of developing the new funding code. Uh, When COVID uh, happened, we looked very carefully at the issues that we were raising uh, in our consultation document to see whether any of the principles needed to change. Uh, And actually, we think that those principles are still the right principles uh, and still very pertinent. Um, Some issues that we raise within the consultation document around uh, visibility of horizon of of covenant uh, and sustainable investment risk, uh, actually, because of COVID, we think actually are more pertinent Uh, and more relevant to to focus on than perhaps we'd ever uh, imagined when we originally wrote the consultation document. Um, And as you rightly say, Maria, the consultation document sets out two alternative ways uh, of meeting uh, funding requirements. The the first of those is a more well-defined path, more more structured, more parameterized path uh, under fast track. Uh, And then the second is where the flexibility, the existing flexibility in the system Uh, is maintained under bespoke. Uh, And really we developed those two alternative ways because when I first joined the pensions regulator and we talked to advisors and trustees about what they wanted to see in the code, uh, roughly around half of those sat around the table said, uh, we don't want all this flexibility that exists in the system. Uh, We just want to be told uh, how to work out our technical provisions, uh, to work out what our, our deficit is, And then we just want you to tell us how much we've got to pay and and for how long. Uh, We don't have the resources and can't afford to spend lots of money uh, getting advice on on which route is best. So roughly half the people said, actually, we just want a more defined, more more, uh, uh, structured way uh, of meeting the funding requirements. And the other half, and it probably was the larger pension scheme, said, actually, they really value uh, the flexibility that's in the existing system. So really, the, you know, the rationale for going down those two routes is to try and meet those, those two competing demands. Uh, for those that want a more structured approach, then we have fast track. 
for those that value for flexibility in the system there's bespoke. Um, so we are consulting around uh, the terms of, of Fast Track and how it's structured. Uh, because of COVID, we are going to have to rethink some of the parameters that we set out originally uh, in the uh, original funding consultation where we try to illustrate how Fast Track might work. So some of that detail will probably change by the time we get to the, to the second consultation. Uh, but Fast Track is there. We had particularly in mind uh, that Fast Track might appeal to smaller schemes and therefore, whenever we uh, structured uh, an item within Fast Track, we looked at how small schemes would be able to meet those requirements. Um, so we've got a more parameterized way of doing things under Fast Track, more flexibility under bespoke. And I think some of the criticism that you're you're saying is actually people are a little bit worried that uh, actually bespoke is just a variation of, of Fast Track. Yes. Um, and I, and I think some of that actually stems from the fact that we said that when we're looking at actual valuations submitted under the bespoke route, um, we'll measure that relative to fast track. Uh, clearly, when we're looking at prudence, you know, the question always is, well, prudent relative to what? Um, and because what we're setting out under fast track is a journey plan that for us has a level of tolerated risk within it. We're not saying it doesn't have any risk. Uh, it's a journey plan with tolerated level of risk, uh, then that's an appropriate measure by which we can judge uh, actuarial valuations under bespoke. Um, but we're not going to apply that uh, rigidly or unintelligently. Um, so it might well be that we see valuations that are under the bespoke approach, and they're actually quite close to where we would uh, want them to be if they were going down the fast track route. Um, but they may not then meet our requirements because, for example, they're not putting much money into the pension scheme, uh, but they're paying a lot of money to, to shareholders. Uh, and, and contrary, you know, schemes are a long way away from fast track, might still meet our requirements uh, because actually for affordability reasons, uh, the scheme has got a really long recovery plan just because that's all it can afford. Uh, so it might appear a long way from the, the uh, parameters that we set out in fast track. Um, but it might still satisfy the funding requirements. So we're saying we're just using that as a measure. We're not, uh, we're not being uh, unintelligent around how we use that. We'll just use that to, to, to measure how much risk is being taken and then we'll engage uh, with schemes under the bespoke route, uh, looking at the particular characteristics uh, under those schemes. So, you know, we are trying to preserve flexibility under bespoke. It's probably fair to say that those schemes that push the boundaries, you know, they set uh, very optimistic assumptions and so they had long, low technical provisions. They had really long recovery periods. Maybe they back-end loaded their, uh, their recovery plan. Uh, actually, you know, there may be more constraint uh, for those type of schemes than perhaps there has been previously. Uh, but we think that's right. People who are pushing the boundaries, abusing the system, uh, we think it's right that they may be more constrained. And um, one, two, one, two things. One thing that you mentioned is that you you think that you'll need to make some changes to the fast track approach because of COVID. Can you explain a little bit more how COVID is going to make, how is going to impact on fast track, and what kind of changes can people expect? Yeah, as I said, you know, we we think the principles that we've set out in this first consultation are still the right principles, but clearly we're looking for feedback on whether that that is the case. Um, but within the first consultation, we set out some illustrative examples of uh, what discount rates might might look like. 
clearly because of, of COVID, we're in a very different circumstance. Uh, it may well be that interest rates are low for quite a long period of time. It may be that asset returns are very different to uh, the ones that we were anticipating back in, in March. So when we, we define the, the real detail of the parameters under fast track, uh, we will have to take account of, of current economic circumstances uh, and some of the uncertainty. Clearly, it wouldn't, wouldn't help the industry, it wouldn't help us uh, if we set the, the parameters for fast track such that you know, very few schemes could actually go down that route. Part of the rationale of fast track is to provide a, a well-defined route for schemes to go down. Uh, and that benefits us as a regulator because we know those schemes are on a journey as I say, it's got a tolerated level of risk within it. Um, so actually, we don't need to intervene or scrutinize those actual valuations uh, to the same degree as we would for valuation under the bespoke route. So clearly, the more schemes that go down the fast track route, uh, that's helpful in terms of us diverting and prioritizing our resources uh, in looking at actual valuations. So we will need to adjust the fast track terms so that enough schemes can actually meet the requirements of fast track and we're doing that analysis at the moment to understand actually what parameters need to change, how much they need to change by. And on this topic, one last question, which is there's been some concerns as well that employers, uh, which are currently having a good deficit recovery plan in place, if they go through the fast track, they, may, they might be able to level down from stronger funding plans. Is this something that you, you are aware of or that you are considering for when the, the scheme makes an application for a fast track option, for example. Yeah, th this is something that we thought about really quite carefully when we were developing the, the funding code, because we're, we're saying that fast track is a, it's a journey plan with a tolerated level of risk. Uh, and we're saying if schemes follow that, then we're not going to intervene or uh, put them under close scrutiny. And clearly there will be some schemes that will easily satisfy the terms of fast track. So we thought, Actually, if they're ahead of the journey that we require on fast track, should we kind of force them to maintain that, uh, be ahead of the game? Uh, or would we allow them to reduce? And it, and it seemed logical to us that uh, just because by accident of a previous agreement, if they happen to be ahead of fast track, uh, we shouldn't basically compel them to do that. So those schemes could, if they, they chose, drop down to fast track, if you like, they could ease up on contributions to the pension scheme. Now, clearly for us as a regulator, if people are ahead of where they need to be in fast track, we want to encourage them to keep going. We actually think it makes sense from the scheme's point of view not to actually take the foot too far off the accelerator because actually if you're well ahead of fast track, then actually that gives you a cushion so that you know in future years if there's some adverse experience, you haven't suddenly got to increase your contribution. So actually we think being slightly ahead of the the bare minimum of where you need to be to comply with fast track actually potentially is a good place uh, for the trustees to be. It's a good place for the employer to be uh, because they, they potentially then have a more stable contribution rate if they hit uh, some bumps in the road along the journey. So we'd strongly encourage people if they are ahead of where they need to be in fast track to keep going, but you know, recognizing that there could be some bumps in the road, people could, could take their foot off the accelerator if they need to. We've already discussed COVID-19. We saw several measures being implemented by the regulator around the same time lockdown was imposed and when the economy started suffering. What is the current scenario for schemes? Have they been able to cope 
with the impacts from the pandemic, do you think? Yeah, as you said, Maria, we introduced a number of, of easements over 2019 valuations, uh, where actually at the beginning of uh, the breakout of COVID, they may be coming up against their 15-month deadline. Uh, we allowed schemes an extra three months to, to complete their valuations. We said to them, don't undo all the, all the uh, assumption setting that you've previously done, but just to have a look. Uh, to see whether contributions are, are still affordable, and we gave them an extra three months to do that. For actuarial valuations uh, that are due this year, we recognise that there are some really difficult uh, challenges in terms of setting assumptions. And we asked uh, trustees to work with employers and encourage employers to share information with trustees around how they feel that their business will emerge from uh, this, this, this uh, economic crisis, this lockdown, uh, the speed at which they might return to normal and look at a range of scenarios. So we're asking employers to share those scenarios uh, with trustees uh, and for trustees and employers to work together on a, a funding approach, which actually is both fair to the trustees and pension scheme members, uh, but also to the extent that there needs to be some flexibility, that there is some flexibility for the employer. So we recognise that, that setting uh, and agreeing actuarial valuations as at March, April this year is going to be particularly challenging. Uh, and we have said, if we think it's appropriate, we may issue some, some further guidance around that. But as you rightly say, there are some employers that got much more immediate uh, financial pressures. Uh, and the easements that we gave was that trustees could agree to a request from the employers to stop contributions or defer contributions in the short term. Actually, what, what we have seen is that already some of those, uh, that deferral or, or uh, stopping of contributions have already been made good. So actually employers have been helped through uh, those difficult challenges. But within the regulator, we are seeing a number of requests now for different recovery plans, perhaps slightly extended or uh, restructuring of contributions that are coming through. And we're looking at, at some of those. Uh, many of those have taken the advice on board that we set out for how uh, trustees should react. Uh, some we're actually looking at a little bit more closely, but it's probably fair to say we've not we've not had a, uh, a huge number of requests uh, uh, to date around uh, 100 recovery plan uh, amendments to date. So probably quite a modest level of, of uh, companies and trustees agreeing different recovery plans. Clearly, that's something that we'll, we'll monitor and, and uh, we'll adjust our guidance if we think it's appropriate, uh, depending on how we, we uh, emerge from this crisis. Do you think that we will st still be talking about COVID-19 for a couple months or maybe some m more time? And it, it, is it a long-lasting impact? The challenge is I don't think any of us actually, <laughs> actually know uh, how this is going that's to true. happen. I mean, I think what we are seeing is, is actually, you know, some companies and some pension schemes are coming through this crisis in pretty good shape. Uh, employers have maintained cash flow and profitability, and actually they're, they're, they're being uh, almost insulated from some of the impacts. Some have been hit very hard, but actually have, have recovered uh, relatively quickly. Maybe they're doing uh, more business remotely or online, and they've, they've recovered quite quickly. Uh, but there are clearly some, some businesses where this has a, a long-lasting impact and, and clearly, there'll be some companies that might have to go through quite severe restructurings or may, may become insolvent. So I think, you know, the way that we, we come through this crisis will be, it'll be very different for different pension schemes, different employers. And that's actually quite a challenge for us as a regulator, setting guidance for employers and trustees, because each scheme and each employer are probably in a very 
different place. Uh, somebody rather described it as we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats and experiencing mm -hmm. uh, different uh, things within within that storm. Our last topic is about the consolidators interim regime, which was launched a couple months ago. I know we, we had not to speak about it again, but we had COVID-19, which might have um, moved attention somewhere else. Can you give me give us a little bit of an update on uh, how that is going? I imagine conversations going on with consolidators. How how has been the interim regime has been received? In terms of super funds, we've always said that we could see some benefits that super funds could could bring. Uh, they could bring scale. They could bring better governance, access to uh, a wider range of investments, and improved investment advice. And and some of those things actually. DB Master Trust equally equally bring to the table. But we've said that there are some advantages, we could see some advantage of, of super funds, but also that we recognize that there are some challenges from, from super funds that they present, and therefore uh, we need to look at them differently to, to uh, more normal, regular, uh, defined benefit pension schemes. We've been very clear that uh, in an ideal world, we'd like to see an authorization regime uh, and appropriate powers for us as a regulator to deal with these these new structures. Absent that, uh, we are in the position that we have been engaging with uh, entrants who want to come into the market and operate super funds. Uh, and we thought it really important that we set out very clear guidance of what we expect of, of super funds that are coming into the market. And we're currently in the process of assessing super funds against the criteria that we set out in in our interim guidance and uh, we're not at the uh, the end of that assessment process so we're still in that uh, we don't have a defined date of when we'll complete our assessments we'll get there once the super funds that we're assessing have, have uh, met all our requirements to our satisfaction uh, and we've been very clear that we see this as a two-stage process the first is that initial assessment of the super fund itself uh, the second then is if a scheme wants to transact with the super fund uh, we'd expect them to come to us uh, for clearance and that will be the, the second stage. But what we have seen in the marketplace are some new and innovative uh, financial structures uh, that are beginning to be put in place by trustees. Uh, and we thought, uh, whilst we've had really good and strong engagement from uh, super funds coming to want to operate in the market, we thought it was appropriate that our guidance should also extend some of those innovative financial structures where the link to the sponsoring employer is, is maintained, uh, then actually our guidance doesn't apply. But at, at the point that there was a, these structures are put in place and there's an insolvency of the sponsoring employer, then we're saying actually these begin to look economically and in substance very much like super funds. Uh, and at that stage, we would expect those structures to meet uh, the capital requirements that we've set out in our interim guidance but also to be cognizant of the triggers that we put in there. So uh, we think it's really important that trustees who are entering into these innovative uh, structures need to understand that when our guidance might apply, what the impact of that guidance might be, so that actually they go into it knowing full well what the, the ramifications are. Uh, and it's probably fair to say that the private equity houses that are standing up capital for these structures, uh, equally they need to understand how that guidance is, is going to apply uh, and when actually they, they may lose if the money that they've, they've put up and, and invested in these structures. So we wanted to make that, that clear to the marketplace that, that if people are doing innovative things and as a regulator we are open to innovation, 
put you know at the heart because we're a regulator we've got uh, member interests saver interests uh, as our key focus and we want to make sure that that uh, that members best interests are, are protected within these structures uh, so you know, that's, that's where we are. We're not quite at the stage of actually having a super fund that uh, is operating in, in a business, but we're going through the assessment process. And once we're through that, then we'll be open to transactions taking place. And have you published this guidance? It's going to be published soon? That, that's contained in our interim guidance already. Okay. So that's in already published. We are looking to uh, expand and clarify our guidance to trustees who are looking to come into super funds uh, we're developing that over the the coming weeks uh, so for, for trustees of pension schemes and employers who are thinking about entering into a transaction with a super fund uh, we're going to expand and clarify the guidance that, that we've already put out well that's all for today so at the end of the podcast we have this section which we call always a pensions angle david you brought us today a story so i'll um, pass it to you yeah, one of my one of my great great passions is is collecting and and investing in wine. And I was trying to think of a of a parallel between investing in in wine and and pension scheme. And I was thinking that there's a wine uh, that I have a few cases of called La Muse, and it's, it's produced by the Verity Estate in Sonoma County, California. And, and it's not ready to drink for thirty years. So I was kind of thinking of the parallel of investing your money in a pension scheme, it being there for, and then you get to enjoy it at a a particular point in what and in time and that that may have a parallel to some of the investment and then i was thinking actually about the oldest bottle of of uh, actually it's a bottle of port rather than wine that i have which dates from 1863 and uh, and you'll know full well maria that the uh, the pensions act of 14th of july 1862 and the pensions act of 4th of july 1864 introduced pensions for those who fought in the the U.S. Civil War. So my oldest bottle of 1863 uh, sits neatly between those those two pension acts. So uh, and I think they're probably one of the earliest bits of legislation around uh, around pensions. So that was that was kind of my uh, my kind of always always comes back to pensions. Exactly, and I imagine that when you are finally enjoying your pension, you also have your wine to enjoy that has been you can only drink in thirty years time. Yeah, I hope I'm uh, I'm still uh, still here and still with it enough to know whether uh, the money that I paid for it was well worth it. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, David, for uh, participating in our podcast, you, and we'll see you again next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.